0: Welcome to this podcast of Finding the Future, where we interview thought leaders and innovators in land use and sustainability. I'm Bill Griffith. Today, we travel to the shores of Lake Michigan to talk with Dan Egan, a news reporter and author who has been covering the Great Lakes for almost 20 years. Egan remembers growing up playing on the Fox River, an industrial river which outlets to Green Bay.
1: It's kind of hard to think of a first memory because it's like thinking of your first memory of uh, grass. It was just there. But I did grow up near the banks of the Fox River, which is a tributary to Green Bay, which is an arm of Lake Michigan. And I was born in 1967. So um, my childhood was spent on the banks of a very fouled Fox River. It wasn't the pristine waters that you think of when you think of the uh, untraveled Great Lakes. And it was still my river. And my brothers and I would play along the banks all the time. We'd get into trouble, actually, with our parents because it was such a dump. They weren't afraid that we were going to drown. They were just afraid we were going to get sick.
0: His book is The Death and Life of the Great Lakes. And as Egan notes, more than 20% of all the fresh water in the world is contained within the five Great Lakes that stretch from Lake Ontario and Niagara Falls on the east to Lake Superior in the Port of Duluth on the west. For anyone who grew up on or near one of the five Great Lakes, It's hard to think of life without the majestic blue expanse of these water bodies. Lake Michigan contains miles of sand beaches that rival the coast of Florida. And Lake Superior holds vast amounts of wilderness and wildlife on both sides of the border with Canada. And even Lake Erie has made a remarkable comeback from the days when the Cuyahoga River famously caught fire in 1969. In a bit of irony, that fire helped give a boost to the passage of the Clean Water Act, and the creation of the Environmental Protection Agency. Still, threats to these freshwater lakes abound, particularly from invasive species, and more recently from climate change. Egan's first book, The Death and Life of the Great Lakes, recounts the early days of commercial fishing on the lakes, the opening of the St. Lawrence Seaway, and the insidious threat that was unleashed with the dumping of ballast water from ocean-going vessels. Zebra mussels have gobbled up the plankton so critical to the food chain in Lake Michigan, resulting in a crash of many of the species of fish that have supplied stores and restaurants along the lakes for years. Today, Egan sees a significant threat in the form of climate change and rising lake levels
1: the lake levels are starting to flirt with their all-time high which was set in 1986 and just five years ago or so we were at an all-time low and we were kind of i think lulled into this security that the lakes will pretty much stay where they have historically been well things are changing up in the sky and in the water and there is no reason that these lakes must stay should stay will stay within their historic average i mean i think our Record-keeping, or solid record-keeping, goes back like 100, 100 years, I think it's 1918. Mm-hmm. Well, that's not even a blank, and so historically they've, and when I say the lakes, I'm talking specifically about Michigan and Huron here, which are really one lake. And it's important because it's the lake where I live and it's the lake that Chicago lives next to and all those millions of people. And people think that they'll stay within their historic range, which is, it's still a pretty big range. It's a six-foot swing between their all-time high and their all-time low. But there's no reason that swing couldn't be 10 feet. And in 1986, in October, Lakeshore Drive down in Chicago was underwater. when There was a storm, pushed some water up onto the shore and... You know, you put two feet of water on top of that, and it's not an inconvenience. It's it's a natural disaster. And so that's an issue, and there's really no lever we can pull to, to solve that at this point, other than just buckle up and be ready to adapt.
0: Over the years, people have asked whether it would make sense to pump water out of the lakes to more arid parts of the country.
1: It was the opposite just five or six years ago. Mm-hmm. People were really clamoring for some kind of a control structure on the river that takes Lakes Michigan and Huron out toward the ocean. You don't hear people, well, actually there are people who are still saying that we need this. The problem is when you put a lever on something then humans, humans move it and you know, under which motives? You know, there's always going to be winners and losers when it's no longer nature
0: calling the shots. Dan Egan readily admits it's hard to identify the biggest threat to the Great Lakes.
1: We, we do have pollution threats, we have water quantity threats, we have Quality threats tied to that pollution, tied to invasive species, which really is a form of pollution. People sometimes think it's just like changing the cast of characters in the water. like Maybe swapping out an exhibit at the zoo. You know, you got a baboon instead of an orangutan. It's not like that at all. Lakes that used to kick out millions of pounds of commercial fish are now sending botulism up to the surface in the form of poisoned fish. And those... Fish are eaten by birds, and those birds are dying.
0: Millions of people live on or near the Great Lakes in towns big and small, which draw their drinking water from the lakes. And they worry about what happens when pollution reaches unsafe levels.
1: Toledo lost its drinking water supply back in 2014 for a couple of days due to an outbreak of a toxic algae. The algae isn't invasive, but the mussels that are invasive in the lakes have really exacerbated these, these toxic algal blooms because they uh, eat everything in the water column but, but the toxic stuff, so they're selecting for it. And so in the 60s, when you'd get a bloom, it was an assemblage of a bunch of different types of algae. And today, when you get it, it's more likely to be just this one specific form, which is, is bad stuff.
0: Public officials in charge of water supplies worry about people getting sick from toxic water.
1: They're getting sick from swimming. I don't think anybody got sick from drinking water because they shut the system off. It was scary. I was actually there uh, in the, the week that it happened. I left on a Friday morning, 8 o'clock, and, and <laughs> at 2 a.m. on Saturday, the water actually went out. And I, you know, I didn't know that was going to happen. I was just doing a story on the blooms, and nobody thought it would be bad enough to shut down the water supply, but, but it was. And you couldn't boil your way out of it because that would just concentrate the toxin. Mm. It wasn't like a bacterial thing. So boil order, or not boil, do not drink order went out at like 2 a.m. on a Saturday, and by sunrise on Sunday, the store is as far away as Ann Arbor, which is like an hour from Toledo. We're out, of, we're out of drinking water. The National Guard had to be called in, and they were bringing in baby formula by the pallet. You know, it's was wow. half a million people living next to the world's largest freshwater system.
0: According to Egan, another big threat is the Asian carp, currently held at bay in the Chicago River by an elaborate electronic fence which is submerged in the river. In other places like Tasmania, scientists have actually considered altering the genes of invasive species to cut off the species in a generation or two. Still, Egan is not sure that genetic engineering is the right answer.
1: It's a frightening idea that you would genetically manipulate these, these fish so they couldn't produce female offspring. So they essentially, after successive generations, there's no females to breed and they, they literally, you know, spawn themselves to extinction. The concept's kind of cool, but if this book's about anything, it's about unintended consequences and, and well-intentioned actions that didn't turn out the way uh, people had planned. So I don't know who makes that decision, how it'll be made or, or if and when it'll ever come, but I, I think the technology's on its way, so it's, it's hard to predict how it'll play out.
0: If you think of the Great Lakes as they were produced by glacial meltwaters, they were pristine and cut off from significant sources of pollution. That is, until engineers and canal builders altered what Egan calls the front door and the back door of the Great Lakes.
1: front door is the St. Lawrence Seaway, which bypassed Niagara Falls and allowed these ocean freighters to come in, and they have more than just the cargo in their manifests. They have uh, contaminated ballast water, and that's how we've gotten dozens of invasive species. And the back door is the Chicago sanitary and ship canal that connected the Mississippi to Lake Michigan so Chicago could flush its sewage.
0: Some environmentalists advocate for closing the back door to the Great Lakes by essentially shutting off the ship canal between Lake Michigan and the Mississippi.
1: Would I, if I had a lever? Yeah. yeah, I mean I wouldn't I wouldn't just throw throw a bunch of piles of sand in there, but I think they could do what the scientists will tell you and the activists, hydrologic separation. That would be to disconnect the flows between Lake Michigan and and the Mississippi River basin and still allow for cargo to move on the on those canals and for sewage or effluent to flow south. It, it can be done. I mean, technologically it'd be expensive, but You know, not doing anything brings its own suite of costs that we can't even calculate at this point.
0: Another great threat facing the lakes is a key to modern farming, that is phosphorus. So Egan's next book is poised to take on the impact of the use and overuse of phosphorus mined from far off places, rather than relying on phosphate compounds occurring naturally in the food chain. According to Egan, it's a critical question for food security.
1: These, these blooms, I was talking about the mussels exacerbating them, but they're triggered by phosphorus overdosing of the lake. And, you know, any kind of regulations from the agricultural community with regards to this are, are largely voluntary right now. And, you know, it's really interesting. We used to cycle these phosphate molecules in and out of the living world. I mean, plants would grow, things would eat them, things would defecate, plants would grow. And now, you know, it was a circle. And now we've kind of turned it into a straight line because uh, we don't we don't get our phosphorus that grows crops from the crops or from things that eat the crops. We get it from massive mines in Algeria or Western Sahara and uh, Florida and China, these far-flung places. And there's only so much of it. So, but if we could figure out how to, how to you know, cycle it back through to restore this virtuous cycle, we're good. I mean, we get our food, we get cleaner water, we probably save money in the long run.
0: As a reporter, Egan sees his role as a storyteller, telling a story of potential environmental disaster, and perhaps some practical ways to mitigate the worst of the threat. My job's
1: to make this stuff a story. They not make it an accurate story, and that's where there's that's where I rely on, on these scientists to work with them, and, you know, I don't give somebody a call and then just disappear if I have a question about an issue. I give many people a call, and I badger them excessively sometimes to make sure that how I'm interpreting this is, is legitimate and defensible. But that's, you know, somebody's gotta, somebody's gotta tell the stories to educate the people to, you know, in turn direct the resources to do the science. That's gonna make life better for everybody, hopefully.
0: As the father of four school-aged children, Egan says he gets up every day and tries to remain hopeful about the future of the Great Lakes.
1: We've altered the landscape and we've altered the lakes as well. That said, things can always get worse. You know, you just look out that window and you see just this majestic body of water that's like nothing else on the planet, the whole system. You know, it's the largest freshwater system on Earth. They're still great literally, and they could get a lot worse. So I think we need to appreciate what we have and we need to do what we can to learn from our past mistakes. I mean, that's really, that's the only thing that I hope somebody takes from, from this book is that, yeah, we screwed up in the past. It wasn't always done out of malice. It was done out of naivete. And shame on us if we don't learn from that going forward. We'll still make mistakes, but you know, you look at these, these dreaded conk coming, I mean, who knows if they're in the leg. They may very well be, and who knows what they're going to do, but why take a chance, especially if we know how to stop the threat?
0: As Egan wraps up the interview, he spends a few minutes talking about visiting the parks along Lake Michigan and vacationing in Door County, as his family has done for decades.
1: I live near Big Bay Park up in Whitefish Bay, and the water's pretty high right now. The beach down there Mm -hmm. is pretty much gone, but we try to go down there several times a week. We vacation in Door County still. I hope I instill in them the same kind of
0: appreciation that that I have. Dan Egan is currently on leave from the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel to write his second book and continues as a fellow for the School of Freshwater Sciences at the University of Wisconsin, Milwaukee. His writing makes the science of freshwater protection accessible for a wide range of readers and his commitment to protection of this unique resource is unquestionably the driving force of his career. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Finding the Future, and look for additional podcasts on land use and sustainability. I'm Bill Griffith.